Section 3 of The Encantadas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Encantadas by Herman Melville. Sketch Third. Rock Rodondo. For they this tight the rock of vile reproach, A dangerous and dreadful place, To which nor fish nor fowl did once approach. But yelling mews with seagulls, horse and base, And cormorants with birds of ravenous race, Which still sit waiting on that dreadful clift. With that, the rolling sea, resounding soft in his big base, Them fitly answered and on the rock, the waves breaking aloft, a solemn inin unto them measured. Then he the boatman bade row easily, and let him hear some part of that rare melody. Suddenly an innumerable flight of harmful fowls about them fluttering cried, and with their wicked wings them oft did smite, and sore annoyed, groping in that grisly night. Even all the nation of unfortunate and fatal birds about them flocked were. To go up into a high stone tower is not only a very fine thing in itself, but the very best mode of gaining a comprehensive view of the region round about. It is all the better if this tower stands solitary and alone, like that mysterious Newport one, or else be sole survivor of some perished castle. Now, with reference to the Enchanted Isles, we are fortunately supplied with just such a noble point of observation in a remarkable rock, from its peculiar figure called of old by the Spaniards, Rock Rodondo, or Round Rock. Some two hundred and fifty feet high, rising straight from the sea ten miles from land, with the whole mountainous group to the south and east. Rock Rodondo occupies on a large scale very much the position which the famous campanile or detached bell tower of St. Mark does with respect to the tangled group of hoary edifices around it. Ere ascending, however, to gaze abroad upon the Encantadas, this sea tower itself claims attention. It is visible at the distance of thirty miles, and, fully participating in that enchantment which pervades the group, when first seen afar, invariably is mistaken for a sail. Four leagues away, of a golden, hazy noon, it seems some Spanish admiral's ship, stacked up with glittering canvas. Sail ho! Sail ho! Sail ho! From all three masts. But coming nigh, the enchanted frigate is transformed apace into a craggy keep. My first visit to the spot was made in the gray of the morning. With a view of fishing, we had lowered three boats and, pulling some two miles from our vessel, found ourselves just before dawn of day close under the moon-shadow of Rodondo. Its aspect was heightened, and yet softened by the strange double twilight of the hour. The great full moon burnt in the low west like a half-spent beacon, casting a soft mellow tinge upon the sea like that cast by a waning fire of embers upon a midnight hearth while along the entire east the invisible sun sent pallid intimations of his coming the wind was light 
the waves languid. The stars twinkled with a faint effulgence. All nature seemed supine with a long night watch, and half suspended in jaded expectation of the sun. This was the critical hour to catch Rodondo in his perfect mood. The twilight was just enough to reveal every striking point without tearing away the dim investiture of wonder. From a broken stair-like base, washed as the steps of a water-palace by the waves, the tower rose in entablatures of strata to a shaven summit. These uniform layers which compose the mass form its most peculiar feature, for at their lines of junction they project flatly into encircling shelves from top to bottom, rising one above another in graduated series. And as the eaves of any old barn or abbey are alive with swallows, so were all these rocky ledges with unnumbered sea-fowl. Eaves upon eaves and nests upon nests, here and there were long bird-lime streaks of a ghostly white staining the tower from sea to air, readily accounting for its sail-like look afar. All would have been bewitchingly quiescent were it not for the demonic den created by the birds. Not only were the eaves rustling with them, but they flew densely overhead, spreading themselves into a winged and continually shifting canopy. The tower is the resort of aquatic birds for hundreds of leagues around. To the north, to the east, to the west, stretches nothing but eternal ocean, so that the man-of-war hawk coming from the coasts of North America, Polynesia, or Peru, makes his first land at Rodondo. And yet, though Rodondo be terra firma, no land-bird ever lighted on it. Fancy a red robin or a canary there. What a falling into the hands of the Philistines, when the poor warbler should be surrounded by such locust flights of strong bandit-birds, with long bills cruel as daggers. I know not where one can better study the natural history of strange sea-fowl than at Rodondo. It is the aviary of ocean. Birds light here which never touch mast or tree. Hermit-birds, which ever fly alone. Cloud-birds, familiar with unpierced zones of air. Let us first glance low down to the lowermost shelf of all, which is the widest, too, and but a little space from high-water mark. What outlandish beings are these? Erect as men, but hardly as symmetrical, they stand all round the rock like sculptured caryatides, supporting the next range of eaves above. Their bodies are grotesquely misshapen, their bills short, their feet seemingly legless, while the members at their sides are neither fin, wing, nor arm. And truly neither fish, flesh, nor fowl is the penguin, as an edible pertaining neither to carnival nor lent. Without exception, the most ambiguous and least lovely creature yet discovered by man. Though dabbling in all three elements, and indeed possessing some rudimental claims to all, the penguin is at home in none. On land it stumps, afloat it skulls, in the air it flops. As if ashamed of her failure, nature keeps this ungainly child hidden away at the ends of the earth, in the Straits of Magellan, and on the abased sea-story of Rodondo. But look, 
What are yon Wobegon regiments drawn up on the next shelf above? What rank and file of large strange fowl? What sea friars of orders gray? Pelicans. Their elongated bills and heavy leathern pouches suspended thereto give them the most lugubrious expression. A pensive race. They stand for hours together without motion. Their dull, ashy plumage imparts an aspect as if they had been powdered over with cinders. A penitential bird, indeed, fitly haunting the shores of the clinkered encantadas, where untormented Job himself might have well sat down and scraped himself with potsherds. Higher up now we mark the goony, or grey albatross, anomalously so called, an unsightly unpoetic bird, unlike its storied kinsman which is the snow-white ghost of the haunted capes of hope and horn. As we still ascend from shelf to shelf, we find the tenants of the tower serially disposed in order of their magnitude. Gannets, black and speckled haglets, jays, sea-hens, sperm-whale birds, gulls of all varieties, thrones, princedoms, powers, dominating one above another in senatorial array, while sprinkled over all, like an ever-repeated fly in a great piece of broidery, the stormy petrel, or Mother Carey's chicken, sounds his continual challenge and alarm. That this mysterious hummingbird of ocean, which, had it but brilliancy of hue, might from its evanescent liveliness be almost called its butterfly, yet whose chirrup under the stern is ominous to mariners as to the peasant the death-ticks sounding from behind the chimney-jam, should have its special haunt at the Encantadas, contributes in the seaman's mind not a little to their dreary spell. As day advances, the dissonant den augments. With ear-splitting cries, the wild birds celebrate their matins. Each moment, flights push from the tower, and join the aerial choir hovering overhead, while their places below are supplied by darting myriads. But down through all this discord of commotion, I hear clear silver bugle-like notes unbrokenly falling, like oblique lines of swift slanting rain in a cascading shower. I gaze far up and behold a snow-white angelic thing, with one long lance-like feather thrust out behind. It is the bright and spiriting chanticleer of ocean, the beauteous bird, from its bestirring whistle of musical invocation, fitly styled the boatswain's mate. The winged, life-clouding Rodondo had its full counterpart in the finny hosts which peopled the waters at its base. Below the waterline, the rocks seemed one honeycomb of grottoes, affording labyrinthine lurking-places for swarms of fairy-fish. All were strange, many exceedingly beautiful, and would have well graced the costliest glass globes in which goldfish are kept for a show. Nothing was more striking than the complete novelty of many individuals of this multitude. Here hues were seen as yet unpainted, and figures which are unengraved. To show the multitude, avidity, and nameless fearlessness and tameness of these fish, let me say that often, marking through clear spaces of water, temporarily made so by the concentric dartings of the fish above the surface, certain larger and less unwary whites, which swam slow and deep, 
our anglers would cautiously essay to drop their lines down to these last. But in vain there was no passing the uppermost zone. No sooner did the hook touch the sea than a hundred infatuates contended for the honor of capture. Poor fish of Rodondo! In your victimized confidence, you are of the number of those who inconsiderately trust, while they do not understand, human nature. But the dawn is now fairly day. Band after band, the sea-fowl sail away to forage the deep for their food. The tower is left solitary, save the fish-caves at its base. Its bird-lime gleams in the golden rays like the whitewash of a tall lighthouse or the lofty sails of a cruiser. This moment, doubtless, while we know it to be a dead desert rock, other voyagers are taking oaths it is a glad populous ship. But ropes now, and let us ascend. Yet soft, this is not so easy. End of sketch third. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.